If a firm's growth is directly related to its CEO's ability to focus, what are the three key things on which they must focus to achieve success? We'll talk to the guy who wrote the book that answers that question on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. You know, for a lot of us, when we think about a CEO, we think of a huge company with thousands and thousands of employees. But even if you're a sole practitioner, you're still the CEO of your business. And if you're running a small shop, you're still the CEO of your business. And if you're working for somebody else, you probably should be thinking like a CEO. And the problem is that there's so much noise and so many distractions for CEOs, whatever size your organization, however you fashion yourself, that it's very difficult for them, for all of you to focus. And I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast today an old friend, Trey Taylor. Trey wrote a great book called A CEO Only Does Three Things. And Trey, by way of background, is Managing Director of Trinity Blue and Taylor Insurance. And this is a really, really great read and a really interesting book. And with that, welcome, Trey. David, so good to be with you. Thanks, and good to see you again. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to see you as well. So to level set a little bit, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, David, I run the uh, family business now. It's a third-generation brokerage firm. I've added consulting to what we do so I consult with some other CEOs. But, uh, you know, the way that I got to this position is a little different than some people, I think, in the industry. My dad ran the company, and he told me coming up, like, don't ever do what I do for a living. You know, go and do something else. Go be a doctor. Go be a lawyer. Just go do something else where clients that don't know as much as you know about the business don't fire you for something they don't understand, which is kind of a thing in our business. You know, it's... uh, There's always a knowledge gap between us and our clients, and uh, sometimes we benefit from that and sometimes we don't. So I followed his advice, and I went to law school, uh, took a degree from Tulane in New Orleans, and did tax, corporate transactions, negotiations, that sort of thing. And right after law school, found myself in the corporate world at a company that became WebMD. So I was one of the first hundred employees at WebMD. I did that. I really liked that kind of work. It was very satisfying to me. And I'd left that job to go into the venture capital business because that really is um, a a good passion of mine to deploy capital against someone who's building something for the future. And I had a good career going. And one day uh, I got a call from my mom. She and my dad were in Vegas visiting friends and family. And uh, she said, your dad's in the hospital and it's not looking good. Well, I was in the middle of a move. My new employer had had sent the, the, the trucks to get my stuff out of my house. And I said, well, keep me informed. Let me let me know what's going on. And she said, you're not hearing me. You need to be in an airplane out here right now. You're not going to get to say goodbye wow. to your dad. So obviously that was a bit of a change. And so I, 
you know, I did that. And my brother and I brought my dad home a couple of weeks later, but not the way that we wanted to. So then I was at this crossroads, like, where do I go from here? Do I go into this career that I am getting really good at? I was very heavily recruited for the new position. Or do I go home and do the things, you know, that I owe the family to do, knowing that I had always been advised out of that industry? And so it wasn't um, an easy decision. Maybe it should have been, but it took me a little while to figure out that, yeah, that was my job. That was my obligation. So I took over the firm at that point. That was 15 years ago now, and uh, we have grown and expanded that firm. We've started some other companies, uh, subsidiaries, doing some other type of insurance work, and then we're doing consulting as well. So all of that is to say it was a long and sort of twisty road for me to get there. And then, you know, pandemic hits last year, and we could tell that things were going to be different. We're going to be stuck at home. And I've had the book in some form of production over the last, uh, you know, three years. And I said last year, if I'm going to be sat at home anyway, I'm going to get this thing done. So I really hammered out as much of it as I could, hired a publisher, you know, took a publisher on with me and uh, hired an editor and that sort of thing. And we we got the book published and then it came out in the middle of November of last year. Amazon bestseller pretty quickly. I'm really proud that for a couple of weeks, it bumped traction and profit first off the uh, top uh, top of the category that we uh, competed with them in. That was a great pleasure of mine. And and that was it. That's how we got the book out. And it's like giving birth, you know? Well, yeah, writing a book is almost as much hard work as running a podcast. And, you know, they're both difficult endeavors because they both own you for a while. That's exactly so the it. The three things that, to, to zero in on the book, the three, and then we'll talk about each one of them in, in turn. The three things that you say a CEO should do are culture, people, and numbers. And since That's right. I'm a firm believer that everything is downstream from culture, let's talk a little bit about culture. What is corporate culture and what isn't it? What, what's the biggest misconception about that? Yeah, culture is the ethical environment in which we live, work, and play. And it is our opportunity to say to the world, these are my values that I think should be true in the world. And I want to see these values appear in the world, through my agency, and in the lives of the people that I employ. And that's really what culture is. Said a slightly different way, culture is it's the sum of the things that you value enough to cultivate, to nurture in the world. It's a metaphysical environment that we're creating. And uh, to your point, if we get culture right, then we source people right who do numbers right and that sort of thing. Everything sort of comes from the culture that you create. The biggest misconception that I find in my clients is uh, some people think, well, we don't have a culture or we have such an organic culture that it doesn't have to be worked on. And every single time I hear that, I know that there's problems in the culture because you can have a least common denominator culture where you don't tend to it, you don't nurture it, you don't remove the weeds, you don't really take care of it in any kind of way. And so in doing that, you make a very fertile environment for people to build their own microcultures, which never benefit the macro culture. And so that's the biggest misconception I think people have is that they don't have to put their hands on culture. And my prime argument is a CEO not only should do those things, but literally is the only person in the organization with the authority and the responsibility to touch culture, people, and numbers. So if if you're a CEO, what's that thought process like, whether you're going in fresh or whether you one day wake up and read your book and go, holy cow, our culture is a bunch of microcultures. 
and they're clashing, they're fighting each other, and I've got to create a consistent culture. What's that process like? Yeah, the, the first step of the process is to get the values articulated. And that takes some people, you know, two weeks, and it takes some people a year to get that done. With me sort of holding their hand or holding their neck in some <laughs> some occasions, you know, like, let's get this done, because it is a hard thing to do, because you are literally drawing a line between what will be true for us and what will not be true for us. And with that said, you know, articulating those values that we all share, there's an art to that. There's a there's it's not just cold science, you have to really sort of lead with your heart in that. And that's where we start every CEO out, even the ones that swear to me they have the best culture in the industry. And those that say, I've never done anything on this kind of work. That's exactly what we do is we start out with values articulation. But after you build it, you need to do two things. You need to inculcate that into the folks who work for you and make sure it's their catechism. And then you need to sustain that. What's involved in those two steps? So it's all, it all comes down to ritual. How do you want the value showing up in the behaviors of your people? So we ritualize everything that we can, and it becomes a bit of a tongue-in-cheek joke the first you know year because it's uncomfortable. It's like riding a bike for the first time. Is you know, you know what it's supposed to look like, but you don't feel like you look like that. Those kinds of objections come up pretty frequently, and so you know we ritualize things all the way down to individual meetings that happen in the company. So for example, in my company, we have 13 core values, call them the Beatitudes. And the beginning of every meeting that has at least two people in it, we are supposed to take 30, 60 seconds to go through the Beatitude of the week. How do we know the Beatitude of the week? Well, on Monday, a team member publishes an, uh, you know, a, a sort of a lengthy email that says, here's the value, and this is how I see it practiced in our organization. The more we do that, the more second nature our values come to be. And then what is really glorious is that first time that somebody says, hey, I want to question the path that we are choosing in this scenario because I don't think it accords with our values. And when you see that come to be, that's when you know that your culture has now attached to the DNA of the company. So when you've got everybody on the same frequency, does it eliminate friction? It does, or it highlights friction in a way that you can make positive. So it is completely okay with me if you and I have a different view of how we should be practicing one of our Beatitudes. That's okay. That's healthy. When communication breaks down and one of the two parties says something like, well, you don't understand what it really means to work here, or I hold these values at a higher level than you do, that's an unhealthy result. And that's not one that we want to see. So, you know, it's not, uh, people always think that uh, you establish a culture and everybody, it's not a cult. It's a culture. Everyone participates at the level in which they can contribute. And uh, if you're doing that, then you're all pulling the wagon on the same rope. You're going to get a lot further. But if everyone's pulling in their own direction, uh, you can still get forward momentum, but it's a lot more work to keep it going. And now a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. 
Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now back to our discussion. So let's move on to people, which is the second thing that a CEO should focus on. And let's start with that weird process of hiring somebody new. Because culture is so important, do you focus on fit first and skills second? We do. What's that mixture like? What's that process like? Yeah, so we advocate a a very different recruiting conversation. And the recruiting conversation we think should be broken up into four different categories. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean four different interviews. Maybe it means eight different interviews, right? Maybe it means two different interviews. That I'm not so concerned about. What I am concerned about is that we are reaching a full understanding on each one. And the very first thing that we interview on in our organization, and I have many clients doing this as well, David, lots of our friends that we hold mutually are in this process as well. And the first thing we do is we talk about culture, because at the end of the day, I'm not sure that we can teach culture as much as we can discover people with values similar enough to ours where the culture sort of teaches them organically. And so we, I, this, this is the interview that I do, is I do the culture interview, and I tell them four reasons they don't want to work at our firm. And these are four very closely held cultural beliefs and trends that people have experienced and quit and not worked for us anymore because they didn't like it. And I expose them to that kind of thing. And then typically, if, it's, if I have my druthers here, typically I send them off for 12 to 48 hours and say, you come back tomorrow and tell me if this is something you want to be a part of. Now, notice, we have not discussed the position. They don't know what the capabilities required are. They don't know the compensation. They don't know anything but, is that an environment that I would like to work in? And if I send them off to do that, then and they come back, and 75% of them do. So I lose one out of four who say that's weird or it feels you know strange to me or it's a cult or whatever opinions they may have on that. Then we move them into the capabilities section. Then we talk about here's what the job is. This is what you would be doing on a daily basis. Here's the person who's doing the job today so that you can talk to them outside of my, my earshot. You can ask them questions. You know, we like that sort of Chinese wall idea that you can ask somebody a question, you know, outside of the the purview of the person interviewing for the job. I think that's healthy. And then we do some objective testing on whether that person is going to be a good fit for that job capability. Moving on from there, then we talk about compensation. So every job offer you've ever seen says commensurate with experience and that sort of thing. But we take that in a very different way. And so We budget for a position. Any business would do that. But we also let the candidate write their job offer in five different ways. So they can choose to allocate funds between salary, bonus, commission, you know, time away from the office, all kinds of things like that, retirement, any of that sort of thing, health insurance and benefits if they need to allocate there as well. We let the candidate do that. And it's really amazing to me that there has not been a time yet that I've done that, that the candidate hasn't made the job better for themselves than I ever would have made it and usually have saved me money in doing it. So I think this is a really revolutionary thing to do. Last, I know I'm going long, but last thing is the commitment interview. So after we've done all of that, we've selected this as the candidate. We want to sit down and rehearse again. 
These are the commitments that the organization is going to make to you. And these are the commitments you're going to make to the organization. Because if those two things align, we should be happy and successful together. Lots of times, and I get a little bit of flack from this from my friends, lots of times I invite them to bring somebody else to that interview. Spouse, fiance, girlfriend. I've had a millennial bring his mom into that interview before, which is okay with me. But again, I take flack for it. You know, that sort of thing. But the whole point is, I'm not just making promises to one person. I'm making promises to a family. And I want that family to know that they're making promises to me as well. So that's how we do recruiting. And it's it's very different, but extraordinarily effective. Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of folks do that in the opposite order. And what they don't understand, and again, we started talking about culture because I think everything flows downhill from there or downstream from there. If you hire somebody who's incredibly skilled and who fits within your budget, but who doesn't share your values, you're dropping a cancer into the middle of your team. That's exactly And you're going to regret it in a zillion different ways. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Let's move on. We've got a few minutes left. Let's move on to the last thing that a CEO should concern themselves, which is numbers. When you say numbers, do you mean numbers like top line, bottom line, or do you mean it more in depth than that? It's a little more in depth than that. Of course, numbers are uh, top line, bottom line, uh, free cash flow, uh, number of appointments kept, you know, any of the hard metrics that we can say, are these driving the ultimate uh, financial success of the business? Absolutely. Those are things that we should look at. I love profit first mentality. I love the idea in ownership thinking as well which is a book by Brad Ham that I reference uh, extensively in my book, that says you need to be really transparent about what the numbers are, where they come from, who owns them, you know, how are they calculated, what they mean individually for people as well. So we measure soft numbers and hard numbers. It is important to me, for example, that each of the people in, in my purview, each of the people that, are, that have been trusted to my care, do one thing in a year to where they improve themselves. We call it a personal growth initiative. It's a soft number. You know, each person sets their own personal growth initiative. One person wants to be a private pilot. One person wants to get licensed to do this over here. One person has a side hustle for baking cakes or whatever. It doesn't matter to me what it is. But as long as they are using resources that we can provide them to grow as people, that's very important to us. So you can imagine that is one of the KPIs that we track. What is our percentage achievement on Uh, personal growth initiatives in the course of a year. So that's just illustrating the point that that the CEO has to be in tune with his company and the vision of where he or she wants to take that company enough to fill out the KPIs to be everything that he wants it to be. But it still comes back to culture. All the things that we've just talked about all come back to culture. And, you know, we've got about a minute, minute and a half left. If you were talking to one of your consulting clients and you were talking about culture, what do you see most often that's the big stumbling block? The, not the little tiny pebble in the shoe that grinds it down, but the big boulder that they've never gotten around. The biggest problem that we have long term is the unwillingness of a CEO to delegate anything. And so they end up keeping things too much. That is the headwaters of the culture that you're talking about. Because that tells everyone in the organization that there's only one person capable of doing the work that this organization has been called to do. And not to reuse your phrase of a cancer, but that is a really misshapen way of thinking. And people will work in that kind of organization. They'll spend entire careers there, but they don't give themselves 
entirely over to that sort of organization. So here you are, you're paying someone to be great and you're not allowing them to be great. That's the biggest thing that we that we see. And you can see how that colors and flavors the culture, which then flows into people in numbers. Absolutely. If you haven't picked it up yet, and we'll link to this in the podcast, it's a terrific read no matter where you are in your career and no matter what size your organization is. Trey Taylor, Managing Director at Trinity Blue and Taylor Insurance and an old friend. Trey, thank you for spending time with our audience. Great to be with you, David. I so appreciate the work that you do. And uh, Shift Shapers is on my uh, favorite list on the subscriber app in the the App Store, so I listen to it frequently. I'm blushing, but thank you. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shapers Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.